Welcome back to Maple Flavor Murder. I'm your host, Joss, and today I'm taking on a case from 2011. This man was known as the Catfish Killer, the Dexter Copycat Killer, or as police called him, the movie-making murderer. This is inside the case of Mark Twitchell. So this man was born on July 4th, 1979 in Edmonton, Alberta, so he's about 30 years old. And it was the fall of 2008 when Mark had a ritual of taking a drive out to the south side of town to his garage that he rented out to act out a passion for science fiction with costumes and movies. He had a vivid fantasy life for the internet where he frequented dating sites and chat rooms. And this is actually how he met his first wife, Megan Castorella, in the year 2000. She used to live in Colorado, but then moved to Edmonton, Alberta several months later to meet and marry Mark Twitchell when she was just 20 years old and he was 21. And although Mark could be fun and loving, Megan soon saw another side of him. This is when she learned that Mark was being unfaithful. She also discovered that he was a compulsive liar. According to Megan, he would lie about little things such as like paying a bill. She had also learned that he was frequenting dating websites and setting up bogus accounts with different identities. So before they even started really dating, Megan knew that Mark was super into emulating characters that he loved from movies, he loved dressing up as them, and was really into taking on that character. And one day, he decided to take on the character of Dexter Morgan. This is where Megan began to describe Mark becoming almost like a different person, becoming darker, and she believed that he just enjoyed messing with people. Just to let you know a little bit of like how sketchy Mark was. Megan even said in an interview that she had given that one day shortly after the couple got married, Mark had asked her if she had ever thought of killing someone. And obviously, Megan was taken back by this, but answered honestly. And let's be honest, that's a super odd question, but I totally agree with what she had to say about it. A lot of us get mad and say, oh, I'm going to kill them, but not in a way that we would actually do it, right? I mean, this isn't something most people act on. It's more of a way to get out the anger, and besides, it's not the right thing to do. Mark then replied that he had thought about finding homeless people to kill so that they couldn't really be identified or connected to him. And I can only imagine how shocking this would be to hear from your new husband, especially when you're thousands of miles from home. So Megan ended their marriage in 2004, which by the way, good honor, and about a year after, Mark was married again to another woman he had met online. He then had a child and bought a home for his new family, which, by the way, he got the mortgage for by using fraudulent documents. And he continued with his Friday night drives, which used to cover up the fact that he had quit his job to devote all of his time to making his first movie, and he was living solely off of investors' money. This movie that he was making was, like, super ominous, to say the least. In September of 2007, he had started shooting his movie, which was a dark thriller about murder. Surprise, right? The storyline was that a man was pretty much lured into an isolated garage by a woman he had met online, and then the woman turns out to be a screenwriter who's writing a script about murder and gets his inspiration by actually killing people in a hockey mask. And this was all written out by, and you guessed it, Mark Twitchell. So fast forward to October 3rd, 2008. This is when Jill Tetro was on his way to meet a woman named Sheena that he had met on Plenty of Fish. So Jill was super into her, he thought she was super pretty and intelligent, and so when Sheena offered dinner and a movie, obviously Jill accepted. So on that Friday night, Jill left to pick her up with the directions to the garage in Edmonton's Southside without telling anyone. And I have to add, 
If you're going to meet someone that you've connected with over the internet, always, always tell someone, like your mom or your friend, whatever. Just tell someone. Let them know where you are, what you're going to do, and how long you expect to be there. Plus, as an added security, most cell phones now allow us to share a location with a friend or family member, so take advantage of that. Anyways, back to the story. It was a few minutes past 7pm when he arrived at the garage and he parked right in front of the door that was open for him and obviously went inside to meet who he thought was Sheena. But when he went inside, it was way too dark to see and out of nowhere someone attacked him with a taser, zapping him several times. Thanks to the blue light coming from the taser, Jill finally sees that there's a man towering over him wearing a hockey mask. The man in the mask then pulled a gun and pushed Jill to the ground and duct taped his eyes so he couldn't see. And oh my gosh, I can only imagine how freaking scary this would be. Like, no one knows where you are, you've been tased a bunch, you're disorientated and scared, your heart's probably pounding. I don't think I would have made it out. But luckily, Jill finds the power to rip the duct tape off, get on his feet, and try to grab the gun from the masked man when Jill realized it was a plastic gun. Like, one of those cap guns. And I can imagine the relief on that one. Once the masked man saw that Jill knew the gun was fake, he just kept punching and hitting him. So Jill just pushed himself close to the garage door, where he then dropped to the ground and rolled out of the garage. At this point, he's starting to feel the effect of the stun gun, and his legs just are not working. So he just keeps crawling, trying to get back to his car. When the masked man runs out and grabs Jill by the legs and tries to pull him back to the garage. And of course, at this point, Jill knew that if he was brought back into that garage, he was a dead man, for sure. So he tried as hard as he could to grab whatever strength he had left to make his legs work. And at that moment, he saw a man and a woman walking by and just screamed for help. So this couple is clearly shocked and didn't know what to do. I mean, like, think about it. Someone's crawling on the ground, asking for your help and claiming that this man is trying to rob them and asking you just to help them to their truck. I mean, what's the right thing to do here? Like, do you stop and help or... Are you going to take caution, leave, and just call 911 to take care of it? I mean, you never really know what someone's intentions are, right? So this couple believed that this was just like an attempt to rob them. And in the end, they just ran home, called 911, and police were dispatched to, to the couple's home where the couple was finally able to tell the police what had happened and kind of show them where it all went down. And when they went to show the police where it all, had all happened, the man was just gone. And of course, this man wasn't identified until a bit later. So a full week later, another man named John Altinger was lured to the same garage for the same reason. He had met a woman on Plenty of Fish, and this guy was always online and in contact with friends and family constantly, which kind of helped him make the smart decision of letting his friends know exactly where he was, and even sharing the directions on how to get there. So from the messaging history that we have, know that he arrived at the garage a little bit after 7 p.m. And after that last message, he went completely silent. Two days later, on October 10th, which is Canadian Thanksgiving, he was still unheard of. He had missed a bike trip that he had planned, which was super unusual for him because he said he was going to be there at a certain time. He was going to be there at that time. So when he didn't show up or call, because again, he was always online and in contact with everyone, this is when the family and friends started to get a little bit worried. So on the following Monday, an email was sent out to his family saying that John was going to go away with the woman that he had met that previous Friday night 
saying that he was going with her to her summer home in Costa Rica and that he would call around Christmas time. And his brother and some of his friends thought that this was totally weird because it was so unlike him. So naturally, his friends and family started calling around to see if anyone had seen him or talked to him. And when they phoned his work and they said that he hadn't showed up to work, that's when they really started to get worried. So obviously, at this point, they decide to contact the police to report John as a missing person. The RCMP advised them to just wait and to see if maybe John would just show up. Which I know, we all find this is crazy, because we all know the first 48 hours are crucial in a missing person's case. This is when you have the opportunity to maybe find the missing person alive, or at least find the best leads to find who is responsible. Plus, when the police release the information to the public so early on, more people can be on the lookout for a missing person, and this gives us a higher chance of getting that person back home safe and sound. And yes, I know, it's not the first 48 hours because this all happened on a Friday night and this is the following Monday where they're just reporting it. But it's still super early on and even though it's been past that 48 hours, it's better than waiting another week or two weeks or, you know, not starting on it right away. I think it just bothers me because it's already been two days, well, I guess three days if you're counting that Monday since John has been unheard of and the RCMP are telling him to just wait. Like, anyways, thank God John had the friends and family that he did because they took it into their own hands and literally broke into his apartment to find his clothes, his suitcase, and his passport were still in the apartment and nothing had been disturbed or moved, really. It didn't look like anybody had been in there for the past couple of days. So, of course, they called the police again because John clearly didn't take that long trip with the woman that he had met online. So at this point, John had been missing for nine days, and this is when Detective Bill Clark was assigned to the case. So Detective Clark is actually a homicide detective and doesn't specialize in missing persons, but something told him that there was something wrong and that this had become the most intriguing case of his career. And lucky for him, he already had a clue. The directions to the garage where John was supposed to meet his online date, and this is where I'm super happy that John had sent the directions to his friend because this information really is key to this investigation. So this is where Detective Clark starts off his investigation. So they first started by contacting the man who was renting that garage, which happened to be Mark Twitchell. He told the police he had been shooting a movie in the garage and any suspicion that the police had against Mark just really disappeared when he volunteered to show them the garage, answer their question, and even raise questions of his own. You should see this interview. It loads me with rage because he looks shocked by what the police are telling him and literally asks questions that makes him seem like he just wanted to understand what had happened. And I quote, So let me get this straight. This guy who's missing shows up to my garage? End quote. He also claimed that someone had tampered with the lock on the garage. Detective Clark, who's a skillful interrogator, even rewatched the interview tape to see if there was anything that would give him away, either the way he spoke or how he carried himself, just to see if he was being deceptive or not. And Detective Clark really believed that Mark was being upfront and honest about the whole thing. Mark was completely off the radar, but not for long. So after almost two weeks of John Altinger being missing, the police ended up turning to the public to find any leads or any clues as to what could have happened to John and where they could find him. 
So this is when the police decide to contact the couple who had witnessed Jill Tetro's cry for help, thinking that it was maybe John Altinger who had pleaded for their help. After being interviewed, the police realized that this incident the couple had witnessed was in the exact same place, but it was also a week prior to John's disappearance. So they came to the conclusion that the man who had asked for their help must be another victim, which completely changed the focus of the investigation. The victim that they had witnessed on October 3rd had still not come forward, yet still not been reported missing, and no one knew if he was dead or alive, and the police really wanted to find him, hopefully alive, so that they could question him for any information that could help them locate John. It was late in October 2008, and the police were now looking for two men, who were both members of the same dating site, Plenty of Fish. They knew that one was 38 years old John Altinger, last heard from on October 10th, 2008, and now they know that another man was seen at the same garage a week earlier, who was crying for help from these two passerbyers, but had no idea who the first man was. And I'm just thinking of this couple here, like, time goes by, this man has not been found yet, he has not reported the incident, and this couple, who had witnessed him crying for help, is now left with all these questions, like, could they have done something to help him? Is he still alive? Did he manage to get away? If they had helped them, would this have prevented the disappearance of John Altinger? Like, just imagine going through this time, not having any answers, and wondering if he had made the right decision to run and call 911 for them to investigate it. Anyways, back to the story. So detectives still believe that the incidents were linked and that if they could find the first man, then it would lead to John Altinger. And if the first man was still alive, why hadn't he reported this by now? I mean, it's been almost a full month since the incident. So the first man, Jill Tetro, finally contacted RCMP about his attack. It took him a full month to build up the courage, which props to him. I'd still be laying in my bed traumatized to go tell the police. And he said that he had waited so long because he was scared. He didn't know if his attacker knew where he lived or followed him around. He was just so scared that one day he would be somewhere and his attacker would be there too. Detective Clark was the one to interrogate Jill to get as many details as possible to what had happened on that Friday night in October. In an interview that I watched, Detective Clark said that this was the most engrossing interview that he had ever been involved in as far as dealing with a non-accused person. Detective Clark said that it was like he was reliving the events with Jill. And seriously, this interview is insane. I've watched it like three times just because the chills, okay? I'll link it into the description if you want to check it out. It's just insane. I can't, I can't even imagine. Anyways, sorry, back to the case. So after hearing Jill's story, the homicide squad had reason to believe that similar incidents had been planned or had already taken place. So they contact Mark Twitchell again to interrogate him once again. So remember, investigators had already spoke to Mark when John had first disappeared while on route to his garage. In that interview, Mark had claimed that he hadn't seen John or his car, which was, by the way, a red Mazda hatchback. And investigators thought that he was being honest. But later that day, Mark volunteered information that he had claimed to have forgotten. Total BS. Anyways, he said that he had recently bought a car, and can you guess what it was? A red Mazda hatchback. It was the exact same make and model that John drove. Mark was now on the top of the list of suspects, and, like, this is clearly not a coincidence, you know? Anyway, so when the police reached out to him to interview him again, 
he was more than happy to come in and try to make it seem like he just wanted to help. This time, Detective Clark was the one that interrogated our suspect. Before Detective Clark believed that he was just a concerned citizen who just wanted to help, but now Detective Clark had more than just his gut feeling to go off of. So he was the one that was going to interrogate Mark this time. So when Detective Clark asked Mark about the car, Mark claimed that he had bought it off of the street. He said that this random man had approached him asking if he wanted to buy a car. Mark said that the man who wanted to sell them the car said that he had a sugar mama type of relationship with a woman who was going to buy him a new car when they got back from their vacation that this guy's sugar mama was bringing him on. And I need to take a break here. I can't be the only one who thinks back to that email that John Altinger's family had received from John's email about leaving on a long trip with this girl, right? Like, isn't it weirdly similar? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, so he says he bought the car from this stranger on the street. So Detective Clark left the room for a moment, like convinced that Mark did it or that he was at least involved in the disappearance of John Altinger. So he had to come up with a new plan to get a confession from Mark. And with literally no evidence, you have to be careful because if Detective Clark didn't say the right things, Mark would know that they didn't really know what had happened and that he would be able to get away with it. So Detective Clark comes back and reminds Mark of his rights and then says, and I quote, There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that you're involved in the disappearance of John Altinger. No doubt in my mind at all. End quote. And Mark comes back with, why? What kind of response is that? Just the way and like tone of voice that he answered Detective Clark, it literally gives it away. The way he says it is like he's, he wants to know why he's a suspect and why the police know that he's involved. It's like he wants to know where he went wrong, but without giving away his secret. But of course, without a body or any evidence, the police can't keep him. And this is the part of the interview that just like, like really? Okay, so Detective Clark says, and I quote, You're not going to be able to live with yourself for the rest of your life. To which Mark replied, You'd be surprised what I can live with. Like, what? So, the homicide squad went to work, convinced that Mark at least knew what had happened. But of course, without any charges, you can't arrest and detain someone. But however, they were able to get the legal authorities to conduct a search on his car and his house, which turned up a ton of movie props and personal effects. So, thanks to the search performed by legal authorities, investigators got their hands on Mark's computer. So they were examining his computer files and didn't really find anything on the computer that was, like, relevant until they opened up his trash bin. Like, you know, when you delete a file, it goes to your trash bin, and then you can go into your trash bin and, like, really delete it? Well, they found a document that was named SK Confessions. SK standing for serial killer. And this file was detailing everything that had happened with Jill Tetro and John Altinger. It was so detailed that Jill claimed that some of the things in this document were things that had happened but that he had forgotten. And then the details of the dismemberment and disposal of John Altinger were also found in this document. So as soon as this document was found and read, Mark was arrested and charged with attempt of murder and first-degree murder on October 31st, 2008. He spent the day in the backseat of a police car to lead police to where John Altinger's body was. And of course, he refused to give up the location of the body. And this really sucked. The body was the last thing the police needed. And Detective Clark tried to actually visit Mark to see if he could get any information on where the body was. But 
Mark still refused. And it's really sad because all that the police wanted to do was just return John to his family so that he could have a proper burial and for the family to tell him goodbye one last time. So about nine months later, Mark requested a meeting, but the one condition was that he was not having it with Detective Bill Clark. So two other detectives were sent to interview him. This interview didn't even last three minutes. Like, police read him his rights, and Mark wrote down the information on a Google map printout of where the body was located, and that was that. So in March of 2011, Mark finally went to trial in Edmonton for first-degree murder and attempt of murder. Taking the stand on his own behalf, he insisted that he lured the men to the garage for publicity for his movie, assuming that once he'd let them go, they would spread the word on what had happened, which in turn would give him publicity for his movie. But according to Mark, it all went wrong. When an infuriated John Altamere had attacked him, and Mark had to defend himself, his writing up with the murder wasn't a confession, but that it was pure fiction, and the jury didn't buy it at all. It literally took four hours to return with a guilty verdict. So on April 12, 2011, Mark was convicted and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. So, this means that he can't apply for parole until the year 2036. So, Mark is currently behind bars at the Maximum Security Penitentiary in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Both before and after his conviction, he had chosen to communicate extensively with the Fifth Estate by letter, where he explains and justifies his every instinct, motive, and action. Mark believes that he has been wrongfully convicted, and he insists that the guilty verdict was made due to mistakes made by others, such as like, the police, the judge, the jury, and even his own defense attorney, who he says are all unable to intellectually understand him. And of course, he can't help but try to rewrite his story to make himself a victim. So, technology helped Mark conceal who he really was in order to lure in his victims, but it's also what gave the police the evidence that they needed for a conviction. And let's not forget... The last messages that John Altinger sent out is what gave the police their first critical piece of information. The internet can be a super scary place and you never really know who you're talking to on the other end. And this is a clear example of it. And it just goes to show that even if you're telling someone where you are, it doesn't mean you're safe. So if you're going to meet someone online, meet them in a public place, tell your friends where you're going and stay in contact with them. I know we've all heard it before. Don't meet strangers on the internet. And if you're going to do it, just take every single precaution. Take advantage of the share my location function. Most iPhones have it. And if you don't have an iPhone, Facebook Messenger offers it as well. Just be safe up there and trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, just leave. Who cares if you're being rude? Just get out of there. And I mean, let's be honest. If you've got a gut feeling that something doesn't really feel right or that you're not safe, you're probably not going to see that person ever again, right? So... Anyways, that concludes today's story. So I hope you're all staying safe out there with the COVID-19 going on. Thank you so much for joining me today and I'll see you next Tuesday. 